This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, to, back to talk about all things beverage. And as you guys probably know, if you listen to the show, uh, when I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at Fausto, uh, where I'm the beverage director and co-owner, along with Chef Aaron Shambura. And I'm also a little bit of a partner in a restaurant called Celestine, which is a beautiful restaurant down in Dumbo, right on the water. So come visit uh, one of these two places. Um I'm really excited about today's show. Uh, we have on a great producer, I'd say an iconic uh, producer out of Sicily uh, the, from the Benanti Winery. Um, Benanti has been on my list at Fausto since day one, um, the Pietra Marina, and uh, we've poured for some time the Etna Rosso by the glass. Um, uh, Pietra Marina uh, is widely considered, and, and I agree with those who, who think this, uh, to be one of Italy's great white wines. Um, and uh, throughout their whole lineup, you find wines that have elegance, purity, minerality. Um, they're just some of the, the prettiest wines uh, uh, on the island of Sicily. And I'm so excited to have Antonio Benanti here in the studio with us today. Uh, to talk about the Benanti Winery and what you guys have going on at this really interesting time for for your uh, your family winery as well. So welcome to In the Drink. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Joe. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> so can you give us a, a short synopsis of the of the history and and how we are here today uh, with with you and your and your brother taking over the winery? Sure. Um, we as a family have been producers of wine on Etna for a number of generations. So we are locals. We are not investors on Etna. We are actually locals. We are from there, from Etna, born in Catania, and uh, we grew up there. Um, our ancestors were, were making wine like many others on the island because Etna has a deeply rooted culture of making wine. But for many generations, it has been fairly... Um, not really aiming very high. The region was not really aiming at bottling and and aging fine wine. Then my father changed things. This is what the kind of credit he gets for changing things. And the course of, um, I would say, the destiny of Etna 30 years ago, and by being a pioneer of fine winemaking. And six years ago, my twin brother Salvino and myself, uh, we decided to make this our lifetime project. 
So we took over and we have been, we brought about a few, uh, what I think are improvements. And New York and the US is our main export market. So we come here a lot. And um, so in a nutshell, this is uh, how we are here. And when your father had this idea in the uh, 1980s to uh, create a high quality wine on Mount Etna, um, from what I understand, there was literally no, no one else had, had that idea at that time. That was, that was truly a, a visionary of his. Um, I would say that there were very few examples. Um, one of them is Barone di Villa Grande, for example, mm-hmm. um, that has been making wine on Etna since 1727. I think what my father brought really is a different ambition and a, I think a very, uh, a very professional uh, and very ambitious way of, of making wine, um, fostering the indigenous varieties of Mount Etna. So yes, he was a first mover, he was a pioneer, his approach was disruptive in a good way. Um, and he, um, our first harvest was 1988. There were maybe three or four producers then on Mount Etna. Now we have 160 ish because they keep changing every month um and yes uh, i think he was the first one that was able to really um produce fine elegant bottled age worthy etna wine so we are very proud of that and how did he go about doing that because he wasn't in the wine business before so he, he had some help right yes uh, my father has always loved wine. He has traveled a lot uh, in his other job as uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, but he had memories of harvest with his grandfather. Um, my grandfather died in the 50s, uh, sorry, his grandfather, um, and then my grandfather discontinued um, the production of wine at the amateurial level we, were, we, were, we had at that time. So my father really started again from scratch, uh, but again, he had. He knew about vineyards. He knew about the very high suitability and quality of Etna as a region. But of course, he's not a winemaker. He's not an enologist. He's a chemist. He's a pharmacist. So he sought the advice of a young local enologist and also professionals from world-class wine regions like Lange, uh, so Piedmont and Burgundy in France, to get that kind of mentality. So it was a mix of local knowledge, local territory, knowledge of the vineyards, and this help from professionals helped to bridge the gap between that and the kind of wine he had in mind. It's so interesting that he uh, sought the help uh, of people from uh, Lange and, and Burgundy, because so often you hear people compare the wines of Mount Etna, the reds especially, to the to the elegant reds of uh, of Piedmont and, and Burgundy. Uh, I wonder what it was. I wonder if you know what it was that he saw um, on in, in Etna that sort of immediately brought him to to think of those places to seek for advice. Well, um, for the kind of wine that one can make on Etna, for sure, those two regions are the benchmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very Etna wine itself, the Narello Mascalese-based wine, does have some similarities with those with the Pinot Noir and the Nebbiolo-based wines. And also, um, the diversity of Etna and sort of patchwork of very different terroirs that, again, finds has very, very few um, 
proxies in the wine world, and for sure Lange, Lange and Burgundy uh, had already demonstrated this diversity uh, and the uniqueness of very small, um, very small uh, parcels. So I think I think it was a very um, I think it was again the best the best examples uh, to whom you know um, he could refer to, but. We never, these days, we never proactively mention those territories because what we really care about is to, of course, foster and talk about the ethna identity. But then, of course, it's nice when the others at the other end spontaneously do bring, uh, bring up those comparisons with places like Burgundy and Lange, which are for sure the benchmarks of reds for that style of reds. Maybe one day people will say that, oh, this wine is really good. It's like Etna Rosso. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's happening. It's already happening sometimes. So uh, uh, it's no longer the embryonic stage of Etna. I think by now, especially professionals like you and in the very developed uh, wine markets and wine cities, um, I think uh, at times Etna is used as a reference. So we're very happy because if I think of how it was 30 years back, it's very different now. It's, it's still niche. There's still a barrier to overcome. A lot of people don't know the grape varieties, and it always takes a little bit of time to first talk about the territory. And people inevitably always try to find out what other grapes the Etna ones taste like. It's, it's an inevitable process. But then I think uh, in a few years, Etna will be uh, really well known, and it will become a benchmark itself. You know, and I feel confident in saying that a, a large part of the interest for Etna is the work that uh, your father and, and your family has done. Um, were there some uh, benchmarks, were there some times where you saw the interest in, uh, in the region speed up? Um, because to go from three or four producers to 160 is uh, quite a multiple. Yes, I think we have to give credit. Uh, there were, I think, um, three main, shall we say, waves uh, <laughs> in the growth of number of producers. Um, our winery has been almost alone and almost by itself for 10 to even up to 13 years. Uh, then in the early 2000s, um, producers uh, that had a very clear idea of how to make wine on Etna, market Etna wine like Terrenere, like Franchetti, so Passo Pisciaro, and also Frank Cornelis. And they, they, they came to Etna, uh, and they, so the number of producers, quality-oriented producers that were talking about Etna indigenous grapes increased. So I think for sure that year, I'm talking about 2001, so that's when it was suddenly four or five of us. And then, uh, and that again surely helped the visibility of Etna. I know that uh, some of them actually drew inspiration from what we had done. We even actually vinified the first four vintages of one of these producers at our winery. Which so, one? <laughs> I, cannot, no, no, cannot, I don't think I should say it. Which one wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. okay. Uh, uh, we have a very different style these yeah. days. So, but but uh, we did help. We did help to sort of spread the knowledge and culture of how to make wine on Etna. Uh, and then there was another wave, for sure, in the mid-2000s, uh, when locals, mostly locals, um, emerged. Uh, so in the early 2000s, it was non-locals that came to Etna. And in the mid-2000s, a few very prominent locals 
that like Graci, like Girolamo Russo, um, like Tenuta di Fessina, even though they are not local, and Pietra Dolce. So there was a mm -hmm. core of producers now about 13 years ago. Um, and, and then uh, Benanti was um, named the Italian Winery of the Year by Gambero Rosso Slow Wine in 2007. And I think that that really shed uh, new light on Etna and now again it's 160 producers. It's so interesting that um, that wave, that sort of first wave after you guys started with uh, Cornelessen and Franchetti and uh, Terry Nere um, took three very different approaches yes. to the wines of Etna. Um, and maybe you're a fourth approach uh, that's diff different from the, the three of them as well. Um, uh, in in such a uh, an old and historic region, but that's also so new. I imagine there's still people trying to figure out what is typical of Etna, what kind of wine should should be made here. Um, have you guys rethought that process for yourself as well? Um, well, this is a very <laughs> very good question, and um, I was voted uh, president of the Etna DOC appellation uh, three months ago. Congratulations! Thank I you. Uh, maybe maybe not actually. It's, it <laughs> no, it's a, it's a big job, but <laughs> I, that's why I'm flying back to Italy in, really in a few days. I'm not touring the U.S. as I normally do, and and the issue of having a recognizable Etna style is really a big one and one we are, we want to face. Um, wine has to, of course, reflect the personality of the producer, but mostly it has to reflect the, the territory where it's made and the very essence of its grapes. Um, Etna has really grown with a sort of hockey stick um, growth rate uh, lately, and that also coincided with the um, maybe the growth as well of the natural wine movement. So currently on Etna we have um, we have conventional but but artisanal producers like, like, like we uh, as, as we are you know like us. You also have a number of natural wine producers. So there has been a lot of diversity suddenly on Etna. We have honed our style through the years. I think we have tried to privilege elegance more and more. Uh, maybe Frank Cornelison went through a similar process um, and uh, Terranere has a very clear concept of how to make wine and what, how, how, how I think, uh, how, how they think, you know, the market appreciate Etna wines. Franchetti's wines are very much his, his own wines. However, they are among my favorites on Etna. They are definitely typical. So we all go down a different route in terms of our own evolution. But yes, it is very important for all of us to make wine on Etna that is really recognizable as an Etna style. So do you think that the appellation might be a bit too large in order to do that? Because you have, um, and you have, uh, from my understanding, uh, the Appalachian exists on the north side, the east side, and maybe the south or southeast side of, of Etna. And then a large amount of uh, altitude variation, mm. too. So I imagine there could be, even if you were to take a similar approach from a low altitude south side or a high altitude north side vineyard, you'd have very different outcome. I think, um, I mean, the, the short answer is no. I, um, I don't think the, uh, the appellation is too large. Actually, I think that the diversity, um, the diversity in um, what eventually is bottled 
is usually mostly the result of a different approach maybe to vinification because the beauty of Aetna is that depending on where you are you have a unique mix of a number of variables that really determine your microclimate like again elevation you have about 2100 feet range uh, within the Appalachian you have different aspects so different intensity of sunlight hours of sunlight rainfall rate 70 different types of volcanic soils ventilation is different and i think it's nice to uh, show the beauty of this diversity i think this is a it really enriches uh, the wine region um it is true that some areas are more suitable for some grapes and some others for other grapes that's something we try to reflect in the benanti approach by having vineyards on four different sites on Etna. Um, there is a debate, there has been a debate actually on expanding the Appalachian area. Currently, currently we have planted approximately 900 hectares. If you multiply that by 2.4, you get the acres. I'm not good with, with numbers, but it's the, the actual amount of the surface that has vineyards on Etna is about twice this size. Uh, but we are not we are not currently thinking of expanding the DOC mm. area. What we do want to do is to maybe find a objective science based method of deciding uh, how to approach the issue. But we cannot just lightheartedly do anything about the boundaries of the Ethna DOC because it's a very serious topic. And maybe it has been brought up too often without really um, going in enough depth in the analysis. So we in the consortium, um, we, we don't see it as a priority. Not at this stage. We, however, want to have the tools, the technical tools and the science-based tools to answer the question and then see, see what will happen. But it's not a priority at this stage. I think the priority is within the Appalachian area of which I'm responsible as the president of the DOC, uh, wines must be top quality, recognizable, typical. Mm -hmm. And in order to define the typicity, um, we have the uh, indigenous grapes, mm -hmm. right? Indigenous grapes. Are people yeah. pushing to include outside grapes other than no no, okay. no 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 actually that that has been uh, by now it's very clear uh, and again maybe i should mention uh burgundy and lange again uh where it's very clear that in lange you just work with nebbiolo uh and in burgundy you do uh pinot noir and chardonnay depending on where you are uh etna by now has is clearly based on nerello mascalese and carricante and to a smaller extent, Nerello Cappuccio. Mm -hmm. So there is no pressure to include non-indigenous grapes. It would be interesting to hear in, in your words uh, a little bit about each of these grapes. Uh. Yes. Um, these grapes are, uh, well, for one thing, they're very much uh, one-zone varieties. Carricante, for example, with really tiny exceptions, really neglectable exceptions only exists on Mount Etna and historically has been grown mostly on the eastern slope and southern slope of Etna. So it's very boutique. It's really a, again, a true ambassador of Etna only. And that is very important for us because the territory is what must stand out. And we are happy that this variety has not spread it that much around the world. Basically, it's non-existent outside Etna. It's a neutral grape. Uh, it's not a fruity grape, it's not aromatic, 
It is really based on all the clusters of all the descriptors of the citrus fruit cluster, mostly when it's young, uh, but then as it ages, it will really develop, as you as you know, because you've tried some back vintages, these very like flinty notes and these petrol notes. Uh, it's a very precise, elegant, long finish, acidic variety, clearly dry. Uh, and even though volume-wise, it accounts for about a quarter of the Etna volumes. It is very representative of the territory of Etna because it, by just having a sip or even just looking at Caricante, um, very pale color, very delicate sense, it will not remind you of Sicily. It's clearly a mountain wine variety. And in my opinion, the most typical Etna Bianco or Etna Bianco Superiore is 100% Caricante. Uh, the two reds, well, there's a clear unbalance. Nerello Mascalese, 75 or even 80% of the uh, of the Etna vineyards is the uh, the building block of Etna for sure. Again, another pale variety, not very deep in color, uh, and very much based on in terms of aromas and scents. Little red fruit. It's also very acidic. Has a, has a lot of precision. Uh, nice tannins that do take a little while to, uh, to to become rounder, but that is one of the main features of, of, of Nerello Mascalese. Very age-worthy. It can be appreciated young. I think, unlike whites, uh, which I think need a bit of age, uh, Nerello Mascalese can really be appreciated young or aged. Two days ago, we had, um, we had um, for our 30th uh, anniversary as Benanti, we had a tasting going back to, the, to 1998, but at the cellar, we have uh, bottles of Nerello Mascarese, Rovitello, Serra della Contessa, going back even to uh, uh, further back in the past. They still hold very well. Drinking window for an Etna wine is, I think, 20 years where I can really put my hand on fire. Uh, currently, few wineries can answer that question by opening a bottle because a few of us were around at that time. But as a bigger number of producers will be able to prove longevity, and the question on longevity of Etna will be answered, I think Etna will step up even further in terms of reputation and uh, positioning, which is already high. Yeah, I totally agree uh, with that. It, um, it's amazing how uh, uh, youthful Caricante can be, it can hold on to its youth for such yes. a long time. Uh, <laughs> it's it's, a little, it's even a little bit frustrating <laughs> because it's, uh, you know, you have to release it at some stage, but you just know that it will get so much better after after a decade or so. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to take just a quick break and we'll be back with Antonio Benanti of the Benanti Winery in Mount Etna, Sicily, right after this. This program is brought to you by Jewel Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Juul user. I use Juul to help me host the most delicious dinner parties. When you cook with Juul, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Paired app is super intuitive and has a great visual dentist guide. Juul is awesome for prepping many perfect portions, making it easy to cook for a crowd, and it's hands-free so you can focus on entertaining while Juul does the work. And pro tip, Juul is also great for travel. 
I throw mine in my suitcase if I'm headed to a rental house with any kind of uncertain kitchen. From perfect steak to juicy, tender Thanksgiving turkey, Jewel makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save some room for mini jars of pumpkin pie. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. All right, we're back with Antonio Benanti of Benanti Winery. You know, last night I actually uh, went to one of my favorite local restaurants in Brooklyn with my girlfriend Alyssa, and we drank two of your wines, um, the Pietra Marina 2013 and the uh, a 2001 uh, Etna Rosso. Rovitello. The Rovitello, yeah. yes, <laughs> out of Magnum. And um, they were both fantastic. And, uh, you know, we were talking about how uh, Caricante needs some time to age. It, was, it really only blossomed at the end of, at the, end of the meal. And yeah. uh, I was like, oh, I wish I could uh, have that open a little bit longer or, or lay that down in the cellar. And the 2001 was just absolutely gorgeous. It was one of the, the prettiest wines I've had in, uh, in some time. Um, Thank you. So I, I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, you know, how these wines continue to age and uh, recommend for all of you listeners to go and uh, check out Locanda Vignoli. They have some really cool wines there. Um, I, I did want to ask you quickly about another important person in the, in the history of the winery um, with Salvo Foti. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know he left a few years ago, but um, he's such an important figure in the wines of Etna. Can you talk about how he was a, a part of the, of the winery and, and what his role was? Absolutely. Um, when my father decided to uh, uh, really start up a proper winery uh, in 1988, he didn't know um, he didn't know any enologist, and uh, mm, this is. Um, uh, almost like a coincidence, my father was having lunch in, in Castiglione di Sicilia with, with a friend, a doctor called Francesco Michale, who is still there and we are still very good friends. And um, he told him about his idea of starting up a winery. And Francesco Michale said, actually, I know a young enologist who is helping out the professor, professor Zappala of the, uh, f- of the uh, University of Catania. And he seems to be very keen on, uh, on Etna and he, a very research-based approach. So a couple of weeks later, my father met Salvo. And Salvo Foti, he's an uh, Etna man. He's from Etna, our, the, you know, the province of Catania. Uh, but he had, never been, um, he had never had a project, a real project with a vision, with, uh, with, with some means. And I would say a positively crazy guy like my father um, that could give him a chance. Uh, he had consulted for other producers outside um, outside Etna, still within Sicily. So um, my father, my father teamed up with him, uh, and Salvo has been um, with uh, with my father and with the consultants that stayed uh, on and off until two thousand and seven. These other consultants. So this technical team uh, has really been, you know, sort of uh, shaping up our style. Uh, we started with a research of sampling grapes um, all around Etna to really understand where to start. And that's what led 
to the winery being present in Rovitello, Milo, and then Via Grande and Santa Maria di Licodia, so north, east, southeast, and southwest. Very research-based. Um, and Salvo has actually never been a full-time employee, but he has been uh, consulting since 1988 until 2011. In 2004, we hired Enzo Cali, who is our current enologist. So Enzo has been basically worked full-time in the winery since 2004 and executing and supporting Salvo's work until 2011, which, uh, and then we promoted Enzo. So we basically had two enologists in, in, uh, in, in 30 years, which I think helps with the, really helps the continuity in the house style. I think we have slightly changed the style uh, in that we wanted to gain more elegance and we wanted to stay a little, stay away from smaller oak. But of course, the style was born in the 80s. So uh, Salvo was very instrumental and we were instrumental for him. We are in very good terms. Uh, we are almost neighbors in Milo in terms of vineyards, where we both grow our Carricante. So uh, he has been, is for sure um, iconic and he is for sure the uh, one enologist that really understood Etna first and helped to develop it. And my father is for sure, Benanti was the best project to embark on. So we have helped each other uh, for a long time and, and then we went separate ways in a very peaceful way and we we're friends. So for sure, um, they, they teamed up very well, my father and him. Sounds and like it's mutually beneficial. Absolutely yeah. mutually beneficial, yes. And I, something that Salvo is a big proponent of is the, the bush train vines. Yes. Um, how do, uh, you know, it's something that's very unique to, to Mount Etna. Obviously, they exist in other places in the world, but no, not uh, nearly as much as, you know, on Etna. And mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering if you could talk about how much do you guys use bush train vines? Is that part of, is that part of uh, Benanti's vineyard holdings? Yes, absolutely. Most of our vineyards are uh, head train bush vines uh, on Etna. Yeah, so I said it incorrectly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's my WSET studies. <laughs> nice. um, um, the um, the the system was brought by the Greek uh, to Etna, and then the Romans improved it by giving it more geometry. Mm -hmm. It's for sure the uh, the the. Um, historical and traditional way of training vines on Etna for mainly two reasons. Uh, first, to make the best use of sometimes very small spaces and small terraces. If you chose another system, it would, you would really not be using your, your surface um, in the optimal way. And also, it's the one that can um, maximize the density and therefore the competition among vines and to therefore sort of tame the productivity of, of this of this um, of your vineyard together with pruning so eventually if for a quality and excellence oriented producer uh, the alberello or the hetrain bush vines is for sure the um, the most popular traditional and I think effective way so even in our case most of our vineyards and the vineyards of all our most important wines are Alberello, so bush vines. And you say Norello Mascalese is a more productive 
grape or is it well um, so it helps to naturally capicante is rather productive and uh, nerello as well of course we all uh, the etna appellation sets a maximum threshold in terms of uh, production so there's a yield above which you cannot go but even those we never we never come close to those uh they're actually i think they there could be some room for reducing them even further Mm -hmm. which is one of the things we have in mind as an idea that we will discuss when I'm back. Um, and um, we, Etna is really about low yields and short pruning and uh, never, it will never be a volume-driven wine industry, even now that uh, the number of producers is growing and there are more hectares planted, Etna will always still be a niche. And I think that if occasionally somebody wants to take a different approach, uh, I think it would not be beneficial for Etna. Etna is premium, it's boutique, and it's... Um, Small volumes. And are all of the Albarello vines uh, ungrafted as well? Or? Uh, no, they're not all ungrafted. I mean, Phylloxera uh, spared a very large portion of Etna. And I think it's very safe on Etna even not to graft and currently plant ungrafted vines for safety reasons, just as a precaution, but also as a way of, again, sort of, um, you know, the, the rootstock can also be a way of... Um, keeping your productivity and your vigor under control. Uh, so we have uh, very old ungrafted vines for the Serra della Contessa and the Rovitello and part of the Pietra Marina vineyards. And we graft, uh, we graft the new, we've been grafting the, the new, using the grafted uh, but, um, vines for the newer, um, the, the newer plantings. Um, but you do, you will find on Etna a large portion of ungrafted and sometimes prephyloxera vineyards, which we have taken for granted for many years until we then found out that it was something so unique. The thing is, we have always been surrounded by these old vines on Etna. So um, we only discovered later by traveling and talking to professionals like you how special it was. But on Etna, actually, you will see quite a quite a good portion of them. Yeah, it's... It- it's really exciting for uh, wine professionals and wine lovers. I think uh, uh, I don't know if this is just something that's romantic, or uh, but I, I've always felt that maybe in some way having an ungrafted vine um, is in in some way a fuller representation. You're not introducing something foreign uh, to it, uh, and it's so, it's so rare to to be able to find places where that that's even a possibility. So one of the one of the things that makes Etna so special. Yes, that is true, Joe. Uh, uh, however, <laughs> it is also very difficult, I think, to really um, single out the. Be- the the benefit of having an ungrafted ungrafted uh, ungrafted vine- uh, vines um, some people can claim that they can tell the difference uh, you know in tasting a wine from a grafted or an ungrafted vine I think I don't know I, I really think it's very hard there's a lot of romance I think it's mostly has to do with it's a proof of how deeply rooted uh, a certain wine culture is uh, in a certain territory mm-hmm. like Etna um, but again um, I, I, I think you mentioned the word romantic. I think there's a lot of that, and there's probably some uh, some science based, uh, or maybe I'm just not aware of, of, of the science behind it. But um, I I have lately we have received a very prominent uh, grapevine um, uh, nursery um, 
owner called um, Pierre-Marie Guillaume, who we've been working with for 30 years. And he told me how he's consulting Romane Conti and how Romane Conti, every 15 years, they, um, they, replant, they replant a third of their vineyards because they believe that uh, what is really essential is the actual genetic material and a certain muscle selection as opposed to the age of the vine itself. So I think the wine world is, will constantly have this debate. Uh, and it's very difficult to give black or white, you know, mm -hmm. clear-cut answers in, in that respect. Interesting. Um, a few years back, you and your brother took over. Yes. Um, uh, your father's still around, but can you tell us about uh, I'm, I'm, about how how that sort of went down? How did that happen that uh, you decided to sort of upend your lives? I know you were not working at the winery and uh, take over the winery. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, the winery was started when my brother, I have a twin brother, Salvino, uh, we were 14 years old in 1988 when the winery was started. And that was the time when actually my father sent us abroad for many years. So we've been abroad, both my brother and I, for almost 15 years. So despite that, we have attended every single Vinitali wine fair in Verona since the very first one that Benanti attended in 1993. So we've been exposed to the wine world while we were doing something else for many years. And then we came back for good uh, in the um, first half of the years 2000, uh, working in a different field, which was mostly pharmaceuticals, uh, because our family had was also running that as a main business that really paid for the wine venture in for many years, in that not so much the wine, the I mean, basically my my father my father's my father's uh, proceeds from that were all invested in the in the winery um, and uh, in the six years ago um, given that my father is now 73 and he was showing a little bit of I think tiredness uh, my brother and I realized that this is the kind of venture when your name is on the bottle Etna is really growing, the, 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 the outlook is fantastic, but it needs a full-time commitment. So uh, we had both already qualified as sommeliers early in the years 2000, so we, we both had the idea of joining at some stage, um, but it's uh, really six years ago when we both decided to uh, join. I, I, decided, I decided that uh, a few weeks before my brother, then I persuaded him as well, uh, literally a month later and um, so since the late 2012 we are fully in charge I am the sole administrator and my brother is technically an employee but uh, he you know we, we are on board together and uh, the learning curve was very steep because one thing is very different to be fully in charge than seeing it from the outside. Mm -hmm. And we have brought about many changes in terms of... Um, it seems like you had a pretty clear vision as to what you wanted to do immediately. Yeah, I think, Joe, that sometimes it's easier to have a clear idea when you look at it from the outside mm -hmm. rather than when you're part of it. So we have decided, we decided to, uh, again, uh, really, really um, back Enzo, Enzo Cali, our enologist, Enzo Cali's ideas, which are very similar to our own ideas. And we decided to do a bit of divestments of vineyards, new investments in vineyards. We invested heavily in the storage, in the warehousing of wine, 
because we really care about wine is stored. So that is very important. We upgraded the facilities and we have expanded the winery uh, on a more international scale. Um, we have given a new face to the winery because when you have very important characters like my father Giuseppe Benanti or Salvo Foti that had been there for many years, you're at risk of um, maybe being uh, too related to those figures, whereas a mm -hmm. winery and any, 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 any venture must go on. And especially when you're, you, the bottles bear your name and the outside world, I'm saying it in a very humble way, but the outside world wants to know who's next. So we understood how important it was to really show our face. We visited every single market in which we sell wine to introduce ourselves and we to build our own connections. We have replaced a number of distributors and we have just reassured or proven to the outside world that Benanti is there regardless of who is in charge in a way or or at least that the second generation was as focused or even even more focused and as committed as the first, which is very important, and a number of producers on Etna will have to go through that stage uh, mm -hmm. in the future. We, we, we passed that point, and it's very reassuring. I look back, and I've seen how hard it has been in the last six years. But I know that now the whole world is aware of, you know, uh, our ideas, our view, and uh, the uh, succession, and you know, the general this transition is no longer an issue for the outside world. We are who we are, and uh, we'll keep going. And you mentioned that you're divested in some of the vineyards. Um, <clears throat> I know that you sold vineyards that were uh, uh, Nero Davila and, uh, and got rid of the non-indigenous grapes and really reinvested in, in Mount Etna. I think that's, that's very commendable. I, I, I'm happy to see that you did that. Was, were, there, were there any decisions that you made after you took over that were, that were a fight with your father? Did you say, you know what, I would never have done that. I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> well, uh, my father, uh, let's not forget it. My father has been operating through the 90s and the, and, and the 2000s when uh, there's so many questions on Etna had to be answered and so much still had to be found out. So he has been experimenting with... Uh, Again, the, the core has always been the indigenous grapes, but he also decided uh, with Salvo to experiment with non-indigenous to really single out the Etna effect on well-known grapes as a way of understanding Etna better. So, but of course, in the more modern and contemporary Etna, those wines that have been so useful in understanding what, what Etna brings to a grape were no, lo didn't, no longer made any sense. But my father had come up with the names and the paintings on the bottles and he had planted the vineyard. So he was very emotionally attached to those. So for a number of years, um, and even if just one person says, hey, why are you no longer making that one wine? He will <laughs> still be upset. But I think overall he's very happy with what we have done. And, uh, and again, uh, in wine you must be a specialist, you must be fully focused. And so we went... <laughs> At some stage in the in the vineyard in the winery, we had more than fifteen grape varieties. Uh, wow. Given this experimental work that has served a lot for knowledge of Etna, not only for us but for all those that learned about Etna. But again, they were wines uh, for a different era. They were no longer no longer they no longer made sense here. We do have some bottles that we open sometimes, but I think what we are done is uh, makes perfect sense. And my father really agrees and is very happy about what we have done. 
Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Antonio. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. I am very excited to to see what the future holds for uh, for Benanti. The quality is already so high, and uh, I'm so excited to see uh, the the improvements that you you guys will continue to make. So, uh, I really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you very much, Joe. It's been a big, big pleasure. And uh, you will see some news from us because we have a few wines, that uh, some f- few new wines in very small quantities that will come. So watch this space. And thank you. Thank you again for nice. having me. <laughs> and you can come drink the Benanti wines at, at Fausto. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see you there. I want to thank our listeners for joining in for another week. If you like in the drink and want to help out, Uh, please rate and review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. I also want to thank our engineer this week, first time, uh, G. Paul. Thanks, G. I really appreciate it. And our producer, Jasmine Molly, and Renny Lopez, who did the theme music. Hope to see you guys at Fausto. And until next time, thanks for listening to In the Drink. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.